Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So the reading of God's word, let us pray together. O Lord, we pray that your spirit, that blessed ministry of your spirit would teach us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive this portion of your holy word. Help us to obey it. For your sake, your glory, and in the name of Christ we pray, amen. You may be seated. So one of the doctrines we affirm here at Providence is the perseverance of the saints. And that is the teaching that says all true Christians can neither totally nor finally fall away from the faith. And yet we understand that apostasy, falling away from the faith, is a real phenomenon. That it is possible for one who has made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ later to renounce that faith and follow Him no more. Uh, We all, if you've been a Christian for a while, I can say you've, you've known this experientially, right? All we have to do is look at the various mainline denominations in our own country, that have denied the basic fundamental tenets of the Christian faith, denying the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and all these things. Uh, We can look at other institutions. Uh, Would it surprise you, for instance, if I told you that uh, most, if not all, of the Ivy League colleges started out as Christian colleges, where they trained ministers for the gospel? For instance, Harvard had three requirements or three things for their students at the very least, and One was that their purpose was that every student was to um, agree with their purpose. And their purpose was to know God and Jesus Christ. They required every student to seek God by prayer because we receive wisdom from God. And they required their students to read the Bible twice per day. And uh, some of you, like me, know what I'm talking about, this whole phenomenon of apostasy 
because you've had someone you've known, perhaps close to you, to deny the Christian faith they once professed. I know for me there are several, and one in particular, years ago I, I pastored this young man. He was married with very young children, an educated man, uh, studied philosophy, taught philosophy at a local college, had an affair with one of his students, left his wife and children, and later called the living and true God a name that I, in good conscience, cannot utter myself. That's sad, but it happens. And we know this is true scripturally, that apostasy happens. We see that here in John chapter 6, I think. They are called disciples, but they turn away from the faith. Now, they didn't stand before the congregation and make a profession of faith. Their faith was temporary. They did follow Jesus for a little while. And as we've seen, it was only because of outward and physical reasons that they followed Jesus. And uh, we can look at the book of Hebrews where it addresses there those early Jewish Christians, professing Christians, some of whom were tempted to go back to Judaism, to deny the Christian faith, and go back to the old ways of the Old Testament. And so the writer there is calling them to persevere in their faith, to make that profession good, to continue in the faith. And so in this passage, we have this crucial difference. A difference between those who persevere in the faith and those who do not. A difference between those who possess saving faith those who at one time had a temporary faith in Jesus Christ, only to leave it. And so then what is that difference? Well, as we work our way through the passage this morning, I hope we'll see the main difference between these two groups that I'm speaking about now. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to walk through it, and then I'm going to make several applications. And so let us begin as you recall, in John chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000, probably 15 to 20,000 when you include the women and children. And so he gave them bread, good bread. They followed him. They wanted him to continue to feed them, perhaps like Moses in the Old Testament. And we've looked at that. Jesus and his disciples supernaturally make their way to the shore. They end up in, um, I think it's Capernaum, as we're told in verse 59 in the synagogue, many of these disciples, they follow him there and he preaches a sermon. He gives his fourth discourse in John's gospel. In that discourse, we've seen already, he says very hard things. He talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And they, as we see in verse 60, they say, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And so John tells us there in verse 60 and following, that many begin to turn away. Jesus' popularity has grown. He's committed, performed many miracles, healed many by this time in His earthly ministry. But He began to preach. And in His sermons, He began to say the things that are necessary, things that needed to be heard. And these were, for many, hard, hard sayings. The word hard there in verse 60 it is the word that means trying. It means dry, perhaps like a bone. The word is actually, actually in the Greek, uh, skleros, skeleton. And it can mean something that is 
very exacting. It is something that requires and makes a great demand upon a person and one's skill. They say, who can understand it? The word there is akuo. If you're a Greek student, many of you, most of you are not. I realize that, but it is that word that means to hear. In the scriptures, it can mean obey. It can mean understand. Um, but I think the NASB, the NIV, capture the uh, intent here. Who can listen to it? Who can accept it? Who can accept this teaching? It is hard, <clears throat> they say. Now, what are they referring to? I've already alluded to this. They're referring to Jesus' discourse in the previous passage, the previous text before ours this morning, where Jesus says that He is the bread come down from heaven. You must eat His flesh. You must drink His blood. And as we've seen, <clears throat> Jesus there is not saying that we must physically partake, but that we must appropriate, that we must have this union with Him that is so close. It is as if we were eating His body and drinking His blood, that we must have Him, and that we eat Him spiritually. We digest Him by faith. It's not talking about the Lord's Supper. Although ultimately, because of Jesus' death and that which is spoken about there, it relates to the Lord's Supper. But this is what they're thinking. And by saying that, Jesus, He told them, it's not of your works, it's by faith that you are saved. The Son of God has come down. He is going to die in your place. And therefore, you must receive that work, accept and believe what He has done, call upon the Lord and thus be saved. And that was crushing to their pride. They were disciples of the Pharisees, the hypocrites, those who taught works salvation. And so Jesus taught grace by faith. But that is how salvation is received. And He is the only way to God. John 14, 6 would tell us and remind us there. There are other hard sayings in the Gospels of Jesus. For instance, let me give you a few. Uh, he says, let the dead bury the dead. Don't worry about going to that funeral. He says, if you want to enter the kingdom... Uh, you must hate your parents. You must hate your spouse. You must hate your children. He says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be perfect. He says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus, of course, in the New Testament, and perhaps in history, speaks more than any other about that place called hell. Hades, Gehenna. And he has very hard things to say. Jesus is not teaching word salvation. He's not saying you shall not love and honor your parents or your children or your spouse. We have to understand what he means. Just like it is with the passage before ours where he says you must eat his flesh and drink his blood. We have to understand what he means before we can apply it to our lives. And as Christians in our day and time, we have some very hard sayings. All you have to do is read the Bible in public or perhaps post a Bible verse on social media and you could be canceled in an instant. All you have to do is to say to someone else, this is what the Bible says concerning gender. This is what the Bible says concerning marriage. This is what the Bible says concerning race, sexuality, and true biblical justice.
And so as Christians, we, we have hard sayings too that come from Scripture. And what do many people want when they come to religion, when perhaps they come to a Christian church? They, they want to feel good. They, they want to be comforted. Comfort is good. The gospel is comforting. But the gospel comes after the law. It comes after our recognition, our owning of our own sins. You know, I've got a book in my library uh, written years ago by J.I. Packer, and it's entitled Hot Tub Religion. And uh, I don't know if he was written in the 70s or 80s. He was lamenting at the state of the church, how people want to come and feel good. They have these short, nice talks, these sermonettes, as some say, for Christianettes, and that's what they get. It's that way today. I know years ago, in another place, early in my own ministry, I, I went and made a home visit to this couple, and, and this older man, you know, he sat there before me and another elder, and he began to lay it out for me that uh, my sermons are too long, and uh, some of you might agree with that. And uh, the point of the sermon on the Lord's Day is to comfort and to console the Christian in Christ. And what he meant was, that's it. And as we talked, it came out, number one, uh, he was not concerned in me preaching the whole counsel of God, like Acts 20 calls the preacher to do. And uh, he was more concerned, really, about eating the bread after worship service at the buffet rather than eating the bread of life. And he left the church. That's sad. So then, there are these hard sayings of Jesus and they confess, they complain, they murmur, they grumbled at Jesus and His Word. And so Jesus, at the end of verse 61, He asks them this question. Does this offend you? Is this a scandal to you? Does this cause offense to you? Does it even cause you to sin? Perhaps that could be a proper translation here of what is in the original. Does this cause you to be offended? Elsewhere in Matthew 13, Jesus gives the parable of the sower. The sower is the gospel preacher. He sows the gospel on various types of ground and there are different results. The ground represents the human heart. The seed, again, is the gospel. And uh, there's this here, this here, this here. He talks about the hard ground here. And in Matthew 13, verse 21, it says, But he who received the seed on the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For in tribulation or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. There's the word, he is offended. You see, whether it's those Christians or professing Christians in Matthew 13, or the disciples with quotation marks around disciple here in John chapter 6, or Christians who make that profession, I use that word Christian loosely, those who make a profession only to deny Christ later, if they deny Him, it's not because of these, quote, hard sayings of Jesus. It's because of the hardness of their own heart. And if you're a Christian, you know the same is true of you as it is of me. The only reason, as we'll see in a moment again, that we ever become a Christian is because of the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's not because of anything good within us. 
Something has to happen. So in verse 62, Jesus says, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where He was before? I mean, talk about another hard saying. He's asserting His deity once again. Earlier He said He is the bread who comes down from heaven. He is God. His deity is the second person of the triune Godhead. And uh, what if you were to see Him go back to heaven? That's what He's asking them. Would you believe then? Maybe, maybe not. Or would it be even harder for you to comprehend to receive it? That's what he's saying. And so he says there in verse 63, it is the spirit. The word spirit there is pneuma. If you look at the end of the verse, there it is again. The words I speak to you are spirit. Um, It's the same Greek word there. And one has the word the, the definite article. The other does not. Why do I mention that? Because one, in most translations, is capitalized. Another one is not. So the question is, when Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life, um, is He talking about the Holy Spirit? Or is He talking about the Spirit in man, the soul in man? To which I would say yes. You know, the Spirit is the one hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. He is the one bringing things to life in the first creation. And it is the Holy Spirit, John chapter 3, the one by whom we must be born again, that gives spiritual life, that brings life to the new creation. But as James 2 says in verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit, the soul of man, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So what is Jesus saying here when he says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Well, there's this contrast between flesh and spirit. I think what he's saying is, Stop thinking that I am saying to you, eat my literal flesh, drink my literal blood. For the flesh, in that sense, even my own flesh, in that sense, profits you nothing. But it's the Spirit that gives life. So as the body without the Spirit is dead, that's the way it is. In other words, Jesus' body must have been accompanied and joined to His Spirit as the second person of the Godhead. The two natures coming together. Not confused, not combined. But they come together in one person. The Mediator, Jesus Christ. And so as the older theologians say, the human nature of Christ has all of its quickening virtue from the divine nature. And so then if you look there, he says... The words I speak, verse 63, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. They are spirit. They are spiritual. They are metaphors. Jesus elsewhere says he is the door. Does that mean he's a literal door? No. Uh, It means that he serves as the door. And uh, when he says he is the bread of life, he's giving us a picture. He's giving us an analogy, a metaphor, figure of speech. The words he speaks are spirit. However, when they are understood properly and when they are received and believed, 
they become instruments of salvation to the one who believes them. And so then John says, verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray Him. This goes back to John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, I think, where again, we continue to see this. Jesus knew what was in man because He's God. Jesus knew what's in the hearts of men. And so it is today. As Hebrews 4, 12 says, there's no creature hidden from His sight. And so Jesus was not caught off guard. That's the implication here. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Guess what? He preached it anyway. He taught it anyway. And so you say, then why didn't they understand? Why didn't they receive this spiritual teaching of Jesus? Why did they not believe? Why? Well, that brings us to verse 65. Jesus will remind them of what He's already said. What we have already seen. In verse 65 it says, And He said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted to Him by My Father. So He said that in verse 44. He says it in different ways around that verse. And remember what we said, that this goes back to the doctrine of election and predestination. Another hard teaching and saying of Scripture. And we said that No man has the ability to come to Jesus Christ unless God the Father, by means of the Spirit, draws that person to come to Jesus Christ. Can, ability, without the power. Anyone may come, but only those that come or the ones that do come are only those who are drawn by the Heavenly Father. The ones drawn by the Heavenly Father are those whom He's chosen before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 tells us. And so why is that the case? Well, there is that doctrine of election, but also there's the hearts of men. We've referred to this. We come into this world fallen in Adam, our first father. Humanly speaking. And like Adam, we fell with him. And our nature is a fallen nature. It is thoroughly corrupt. We say totally depraved. It doesn't mean we are as bad as we could be. It means that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It means every facet of our being has been affected by sin. It means that our ability to please God, to receive, understand, and perform spiritual things is not there. For we are dead in our sins and trespasses without God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And so what does God do in the gospel? What does He do when He draws men to Jesus Christ? He calls them, we say, effectually. That is, with power. He intends His, or rather His calling has its intended result. And so God gives the gift of faith, Ephesians 2.8. God gives the gift of repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25. And how does this take place? Again, through the drawing of the Spirit, the, the effectual calling of God's Spirit. Remember in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul's talking about the letter, the the old economy, Moses, the commandments. And he says, you don't want to be under that as a way of salvation. He says, the letter in that case, it kills, but the Spirit gives life. The new birth, regeneration. In Ezekiel 36, 
26. There's that promise. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. And of course, Jesus referring to that, that truth in John 3, he tells Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. And this happens, this process of God calling His people, drawing His people, as Jesus talks about there in verse 65. It happens by means of the Holy Spirit and the Gospel of God. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God, the Word of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. The Apostle Paul told those Christians, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, you heard it from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe the effectual working of the word of God in believers. And so James 1.18 says that it is God's sovereign will, His sovereign choice that has caused Him to work in the hearts of those who believe. James 1.18 says, of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. And so here's the answer to our question. The question was, what is the difference between the temporary disciples who have a temporary faith and walk away from the Lord Jesus and true disciples who have true saving faith and follow Jesus to the end of their days. It is, they're the ones chosen by God. They're the ones effectually called by the ministry of the Spirit. The ones who have been given faith and repentance, a new heart and new life in Jesus. And if that's you this morning, you can say with me, Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Doesn't mean Christians are perfect. It doesn't mean Christians are never tempted to leave Christ. You see that with Peter later. But then the Spirit comes upon him in Acts chapter 2. He becomes a mighty force for God. Even then, he's not perfect. I identify with Peter. Wish I identified more with Paul. Of course, Jesus is the one we should most identify with, no doubt. And so then, as we think about this turning away here, we see how that could happen. And uh, 1 John really sums it up nicely for us in 1 John 2.19. The apostle there, the one who gave us this gospel, says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but... They went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Now be careful when you read that verse. Don't say that if someone leaves this, if they get their feathers ruffled and they leave this church or another church, they leave the church and they go to another Bible-believing church. Don't, don't quote this verse and say they left us, they were not of us. Be careful. I mean, that could be true, but it's not necessarily true. They could continue in the faith elsewhere. That's sad when people leave for the wrong reason. But as we think about this departure, as we think about 
leading the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I've shared this with you before. My wife and I have talked about this. When COVID hit, we were like, what is this? Okay, let's flatten the curve. We did that. And uh, maybe a week or two after that, we were like, okay, then uh, there's something to this. We're, we're going to reopen. And we did. By God's grace, we did. And that, that's not a pat on our back. But my, my point is this. How many professing Christians since COVID hit have not made their way back to the assembling of the saints? We have to be careful. But are they following Christ? Pestilence has been with us since the fall. Measures have been taken, no doubt. But as others have noted, I agree with them that COVID has been something of a sifting. Just as persecution can be something of a sifting in the church of Jesus Christ. And so in verses 67 through 69, we see that Jesus' disciples, they're determined to stay with Him. In verse 67, there's the the question. Well, in verse 66, it says, From that time, many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? I mean, can you imagine Jesus turning to you and saying this? And so Peter, naturally, being the spokesman for the twelve, he steps forward without hesitation. He says in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and and know that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Literally, the Holy One of God, the Haggai of God. It goes back to the Old Testament, the Promised One in Isaiah and so forth. You are the One. We see this. We know it. And we know they know it because of the work of the Father and the Spirit within them. <clears throat> so we have this great confession. Some say that this is the time at which Peter gave his great confession in Matthew 16. If it's not, he gave another great confession there. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so then in verses 70 and 71... We learn there that Jesus warns Peter, and He warns us today, uh, concerning Peter's circle. And in our day, concerning the church of Jesus Christ. And we could say what is the visible church of Jesus Christ, the way we see the church of Jesus on this earth here and now. If you look at it, Jesus asked the question, around in verse 70, he makes this statement, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? What? One of you is a diabolos, a slanderer, a liar, of your father, the devil. Well, John gives his commentary, verse 71, he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So Jesus is letting Peter know there is even one in your midst, in this small group, that is a devil. 
He's not truly believed. He will never believe. And as the scripture says elsewhere, he is the son of perdition. It would have been better if this man had never been born. Why? Because for a few coins, he will trade in and hand over Jesus to the officials so that he may be crucified. Judas is the example of an apostate. There he is in the midst, letting others know, or giving the appearance, I should say, that he is on board with them, playing the hypocrite, playing the actor, pretending to be a Christian, when in his heart he's saying, you know what, I think I'm with those other disciples. I'm not really buying this. Um, that is a demand upon my life. I don't think I'm ready for it this time, but if I, if I depart, then all these, my friends, they're going to speak and think ill of me and just not ready for this yet. Well, Jesus here teaches us that in the visible church, we have a mixture of those who are truly Christians and those who are merely professing Christians. Our own doctrine teaches this. The Reformers taught this. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, talking about the church, it says all those who profess the true religion and their children are members of the visible church. And then it says that visible church is subject to mixture and error. Not every church is perfect. There is no perfect church. The OPC is not the only perfect church. It might be the odd and peculiar church, but it's not the only perfect church. But also it's full of various types of people. We hope mainly true Christians, but there will be some who are not true Christians. And the Scriptures, the Bible talks about this. It talks about the kingdom of God on earth. It talks about the visible church as being um, composite of wheat and chaff. It compares the church to a field where there are tares among the wheat, a net that gathers bad fish together with the good and a great house wherein there are vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And so as we think about these hard sayings of Jesus, let me make several points of application for you this morning. First of all, we see here the need for biblical interpretation. The biblical interpretation of the Scriptures. We call that hermeneutics. If you ever see that word, that's what that means. The right interpretation, the art and science of biblical interpretation. The infallible rule of the interpretation of Scripture, we say, is the Scripture themselves. I mean, we can take other passages of Scripture and interpret them and interpret this present passage of Scripture in light of those. So when there is a hard saying, when there is something even difficult to understand, we interpret that in light of the easier, more plain passages of Scripture. We have to understand the grammar, the context. Remember the three rules of biblical hermeneutics in one sense is that of real estate. Location, location, location. Look at the Bible in its immediate context. Then look outside of that context a little more. Then look throughout the whole Bible and make sure what you are saying it says doesn't contradict those other things but agrees with it. We have to understand metaphors, figures of speech. I mean, if we didn't, we would commit the error of Roman Catholicism, transubstantiationism, that the substance of the bread, the substance of the wine is transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. They get that from this text. 
Second, we acknowledge, or we should acknowledge, that there are hard sayings in the Bible. And we shouldn't shy away from them. You see, that's why we, we, we try to preach the whole counsel of God. I don't preach through John's Gospel and skip chapter 6. I must wrestle with it. If I don't quite understand something, I will confess that. Hopefully, Lord willing, I would. But the pastor is to preach the whole counsel of God. And when you read the Bible, you shouldn't treat it as a fortune cookie. Pulling a verse from here. Pulling a verse from there. And just reading that verse out of context. The Word of God does not return void. I'm not saying He couldn't use that. Maybe He has in your life. But ordinarily, that's not the way. The Bereans, they studied the Scriptures to see if these things were true. We're called to study the Word of God and so forth. Third, Christians ought not to be caught off guard when others initially do not accept gospel truth or when they accept it, they later renounce it. In other words, apostasy should not catch you off guard, Christian. The rejection of the gospel should not catch you off guard, nor should apostasy. We should have sorrow for those who reject the gospel and apostatize. We see that here from our text. And again, in our day, we have many hard things to say. Uh, just the Reformed faith. We talk about the sovereignty of God. We have a high view of God, a low view of man, self-esteem, self-love is sin. And then we are to have love for God. He is to be the one to receive all the glory. That's our chief end. And so if that's the case, we're to be a humble people. It's not all about us. Our authority is the Word of God. We appeal to Scripture, the Scripture alone. Not science, not the words of men. They might shed light, but the ultimate authority is the Word of God. And so you appeal to Scripture. Some people are like, no, no thanks, I don't want to hear that. We can go on and talk more and more just about those things. We must be fools for Christ. It's going to cost you if you follow the Lord Jesus. You know, I remember early in my ministry, again, the Lord put me through this, this sifting, uh, the sifter at that time, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I was, I've been called a jackass. In a Bible study, someone asked me the question about um, Christian burial versus um, cremation. I gave them what I thought was the biblical answer. It's okay, we can disagree I, I'm, you know, on certain things. And, and uh, this older Christian in the Lord, I, I think this woman was a Christian. I grew to love her. And I laid out, okay, in Scripture you see the, the burial of the godly. They, they purchased land for the burial of their spouses. You see the care with which the disciples handled the body of the Lord Jesus you look at burnings in Scripture, it's usually a heretic or some wicked person, unrepentant, and so forth. So you don't want to get, get cremated. Maybe I've said something hard for you this morning. Don't call me a jackass. <laughs> Talk about grumbling. Jesus says, beware when all men speak well of you. And then last this morning, what is your answer to Jesus? Do you also want to go away? May He say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
We shall not go to the world, a world that is dead and its sins and trespasses. We shall not go to the philosophers. The Apostle Paul in Acts 17 says they're merely groping in the dark after you, after the truth. We shall not go to Confucianism. We shall not go to um, Buddhism, Hinduism. None of their prophets have risen from the dead. They do not have words that give life. Lord, only you, Jesus, have life. We will not go to our sports heroes. They can run the bases best of all. They can kick the greatest field goals and so forth, but they do not have words of life. And Christian, when you're tempted to go away from the Lord, to throw in the towel, to leave it all when you're fed up with the church because of all those sinners, remember yourself and remember the words of our Lord here and remember the words of of Peter, you and you alone have the words of eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for giving us these ancient yet living words that do bring life to your people. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would follow you all our days, even though we do so imperfectly. And that at the end, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.